Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Driving down the highways of Southern California, you'll find beachside sunsets, vast hills, and green mountains. All prime scenery for the motorist on the go. Or a man trying to dump a body. While most cruise up and down the highway to get from point A to B, the freeway killer drove for more sinister purposes. Between 1979 to 1980, 21 grisly murders were committed up and down the roads and freeways between Orange County and Los Angeles. All were young men, between the ages of 12 and 19 years old. Their bodies discarded or half buried in dusty beach roads, back alley dumpsters, or empty fields, covered in bruises and fractures. Some perforated with stab wounds. Others had their genitals removed or completely smashed. But all had been sexually violated. The police were baffled. Who would commit such heinous acts? Was it just one man? Did he have accomplices? No one knew they were dealing with the demonic mind of notorious serial killer William Bonin, AKA the Freeway Killer. William Bonin's methodology was simple. In his green Ford Econoline, Bonin rolled up on unsuspecting male hitchhikers, luring them into his van. Once inside, Bonin tied them down and subjected them to humiliation, brutality, and death. This level of abuse had been common all throughout Bonin's life. As a child, Bonin was beaten and molested by his father and grandfather. By age six, Bonin was sent to an orphanage for safety but was further subjected to more sexual abuse from a Catholic priest and the other boys. By age nine, he returned home only to be sent to a juvenile detention center for stealing. There, he actively engaged in sexual activity with older and younger boys. After his release at 14, his family moved to California, where he began to molest his younger brother and several neighborhood boys. This vicious cycle of sexual abuse continued into his time as a helicopter gunner in Vietnam. When he returned home, he was arrested on two separate occasions for kidnapping and molesting several boys. When analyzed by psychiatrists, he was found to be impulsive, a manic depressive with extreme mood swings and a damaged frontal cortex that prevented him from controlling his dark impulses. By age 21, Bonin had been released from his second stint in prison. He became a truck driver and lived in a modest one-bedroom apartment in Kingswood Village, California. He began to go to parties at his neighbor Everett Fraser's place. It was here that William Bonin met Vernon Butts and George Miley, two men that helped shift Bonin from serial rapist to serial killer. When we last left off, Bonin had murdered his first victim with his accomplice Vernon Butts. Butts was an eccentric and depraved man who egged Bonin on and shared in his vision of pleasure through torment. Together they kidnapped, raped, and murdered Thomas Lundgren, a 13-year-old hitchhiker. Having gotten away with murder, Bonin felt it was time for a change. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today, we're going to continue diving into the infamy of William Bonin, the freeway killer. 
I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. A quick note, in this week's episode, all quotes will be performed by actors. However, these lines are quoted from primary research sources and presented exactly as those people stated them. Following the murder of Thomas Lundgren, Bonin and Butts were riding high. They had both fantasized about what it would be like to kill someone but they had not expected it to feel that good. It was unlike anything I'd ever felt. All my dark urges, everything I ever wanted and needed to get out, all at once with one tiny screaming boy. I needed more. What was it about murder that pleased Bon and Vanessa? Well, this goes back to our last episode, where we delved into how Bonin's sexual gratification was born out of violence. Bonin's only education about sex came from trauma and abuse. This, coupled with his own guilt, shame, and rage, became a volatile mixture, one which drove Bonin to continue the cycle of abuse. What killing offered Bonin was not only sexual release, but emotional catharsis. Bonin could exact every twisted fantasy of hate and revenge on his victim with little or no consequences. This was also true of Bonin's accomplice, Vernon Butts. And who was Vernon Butts? Vernon Butts was a 22-year-old factory worker who specialized in porcelain. An eccentric and strange man, Butts too had been bullied his whole life for his strange tendencies, such as practicing magic and the occult. Like Bonin, he shared a sadistic notion of what love and homosexuality should be. Having been sexually repressed most of his life, Butts saw this as an opportunity to find his own catharsis. Yet when Bonin killed Thomas, Butts was completely taken by surprise. We took him out to the middle of nowhere to have sex with him. As the night went on, Bonin got crazier and crazier. We had joked about killing, but I didn't think he would do it. It was intense, intoxicating. Following his kill of Thomas Lundgren, Bonin fell back into his old habit of kidnapping and raping young boys. He kidnapped a 17-year-old boy from Dana Point in Orange County in mid-1979. Fortunately, Bonin was caught in the act and arrested. He was sent to prison for violating his parole from his last arrest. Unfortunately, due to an administrative error, Bonin was released prior to his court date. Bonin was picked up by his neighbor Everett Frazier from the Orange County Jail. On the way home, Bonin made a chilling statement. No one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. What do you think that meant, Vanessa? Well, more than likely, he was referring to the young man whom he had molested testifying against him. Remember, Bonin had already been arrested twice by this point and sentenced several times for raping young men. More than likely, this was probably him reconciling the need to kill his victims, something he had already admitted to enjoying more. Less than a month out of prison, Bonin decided it was time to kill again. On August 4th, 1979, William Bonham woke up feeling anxious, restless. He tried talking to his mother, but it wasn't working. 
He went for a drive and started to notice all the young boys out enjoying the late summer weather. His urges were returning. Bonin quickly went to Vernon Butts' house. Butts was surprised to see Bonin out of prison so quickly, but welcomed him into his home. The two talked for a bit before Bonin said he was ready to find a new victim. Vernon was hesitant at first, but soon became anxious with excitement. He wanted me to go out and help him kill. I wasn't too sure at first, but Bonin started talking, mentioning how good the last one felt. Not just for him, but for me. He had this hypnotic effect. I couldn't resist. Butts finally agreed, and together they got into Bonin's van and started to hunt for a new victim. What was this hypnotic effect Butts was talking about? That is called grooming, a term used to describe psychologically conditioning someone to do what you want. Bonin was conditioning Butts so that Butts himself wanted to go out and kill. How did he condition him? Well, Bonin knew Butts was sexually repressed. More than likely, he used the promise of sexual catharsis and retribution by proxy to tempt the twisted young man. Retribution by proxy? By helping Bonin rape and kill, Mm. Butts could act out his own desire for revenge on those who tormented him in the past. At least, that's what Bonin wanted Butts to think. So do you think Butts was tricked into assisting the killing? Not tricked so much as persuaded. Our story will continue in a moment, after a brief message. And now, back to serial killers. The two traveled to Westminster, where they found their second victim, 17-year-old Mark Shelton. Shelton was making his way to a movie when Bonin's van pulled up. Bonin asked the boy if he would like a ride. Shelton refused. Enraged, Bonin grabbed Mark. According to those in the neighborhood, they could hear screaming from down the road. When people went to investigate, there was no sign of Shelton. Now we warn you, this next section deals with intense subject matter, including rape and torture of minors. Listener discretion is extremely advised. Butts drove the van around aimlessly while Bonin raped and bludgeoned Mark Shelton in the back seat. Bonin also sodomized Mark with a pool cue and other implements he brought in his van for the occasion. Shelton became so traumatized that his heart stopped. Shelton died of shock. Bonin and Butts discarded Shelton's body near the San Bernardino County line. Again, Bonin and Butts reveled in their kill. On August 5, 1979, less than 24 hours later, Bonin and Butts kidnapped 17-year-old West German student Marcus Grabs. Marcus was hitchhiking on a freeway when Bonin and Butts approached. Bonin offered the young man a ride. Marcus was elated. He climbed into the back of the van, and things suddenly took a turn for the worse. Bonin climbed into the back and restrained Marcus. When Marcus tried to fight back, Bonin smashed him against the walls of the van and beat him about the head. Bonin then bound Marcus's feet and hands using ignition wire and raped him. Vernon watched through the rearview mirror, cheering. Bonin pulled out a knife and began to stroke Marcus with it. Bonin cruelly teased that he was going to kill Marcus. Marcus didn't believe him. He thought he was just being toyed with. Yet here was another opportunity to fight back. Marcus grabbed at the knife. Bonin and Marcus fought for the knife. Bonin finally reestablished his hold on it and stabbed Marcus. Bonin stabbed Marcus while Vernon Butts continued to laugh. 
Butts had been consumed by the same hate and rage that filled Bonin. Marcus was stabbed 77 times. His body was then dumped at Malibu Creek, close to Los Virginis Canyon Road. Police found his body the next day on August 6, 1979. Oh, that poor boy. Would you say this fits into your idea of killing for emotional catharsis, Vanessa? Well, I'm afraid so. It's clear now these, and more than likely the rest of Bonin's murders, were acts of passion. Bonin had so much toxicity built up inside him that once he let it out, he couldn't stop. Plus, now that he had a friend to encourage his illicit activities, he felt empowered while doing so. Bonin and Butts became a duo in stalking the freeways. From August to November of 1979, Butts and Bonin claimed four more victims, bringing the total kill count to seven. On August 27, 1979, 15-year-old Donald Ray Hyden was abducted around one o'clock in the morning. His body was later found in a dumpster near an off-ramp to the Ventura Freeway. Donald had been bludgeoned around the face and skull, his throat slashed, and his genitals partially removed. The next victim was David Lewis Murillo on September 9, 1979, just two weeks after Donald Hyden. David's body was later found in an embankment alongside Highway 101. Along with being raped, he had been beaten with a tire iron and strangled via ligature. Strangling quickly became one of Bonin's signatures, often using a piece of the victim's own clothing as a ligature. This method was immediately used again on Bonin and Butt's next victim, Robert Wierostek, on September 17, 1979. Bonin and Butts wouldn't kill again until November 1st, 1979. Though the victim couldn't be identified due to extensive damage to the head, ice picks had been shoved up his nose and into his ear canal. The effects of the killings were starting to take their toll on Butts. He would come to me constantly. I couldn't keep doing it. I just couldn't. What do you think was going through Butts' mind? My guess is exhaustion, terror, and trauma. Unlike Bonin, Butts was still fairly new to rape and torture. Sure, he had fantasized about it, but never thought he'd actually do it. And while Bonin had years to build up his tolerance and zest for violence, Butts had only just started. Butts needed time and space to collect himself, to rationalize what was going on. This, of course, didn't sit well with Bonin. Bonin tried countless times to get Butts to continue, yet Butts refused. Why was Bonin so insistent Butts come? Well, two reasons come to mind. First, it was about validation. Remember how we talked about hierarchy in the last episode? Bonin was constantly looking for validation that he was the top predator. With Butts tagging along, he could have someone bear witness to his atrocities and support his claim of superiority. Reason number two, Butts was probably the closest friend Bonin had ever had. Who else in Bonin's life would go out and do these things willingly? You're saying Bonin was lonely? But yes. This again goes back to the idea of validation. Bonin, for lack of a better term, finally had some positive reinforcement in his life. No one had ever liked the same things he did, nor had anyone ever assisted him in fulfilling his sadistic, carnal needs. Bonin was desperate for positive human contact, yet he would not find it in Vernon Butts. Butts continued to refuse Bonin. So for the next three victims, Bonin acted alone first killing Frank Fox, followed by John Kilpatrick nine days later, then Michael McDonald. This would bring the total number of killings to 10. 
Still, Bonin felt somewhat empty despite his murderous exploits, one of the side effects of Bonin's manic depression. Bonin realized that having someone witnessing his work helped to make the emptiness go away. He returned to Butts again, bragging about killing three more teens. He hoped that would convince Butts to rejoin him. While Butts enjoyed the stories, he still wasn't ready to go out with Bonin again. Bonin needed a new assistant. Does this continue to feed into your idea of Bonin being lonely and seeking validation? Absolutely. Again, we can see Bonin trying to groom Butts back into joining him on his kills, appealing to Butts' insecurities with the promise of power. Hmm. What about loneliness? Again, yes. He goes to Butts several times, bragging about the killings. He wants the attention for validation, but also for human contact. Like a boy asking a disinterested girl to prom over and over, he struggles to get Butts' attention. He'd never admit it, but I think Bonin needed Butts more than Butts needed him. That's a very interesting point. Still wanting a partner in crime, Bonin reached out to Gregory Miley. Miley was a simple man with an IQ just barely over 56. He had traveled to California doing odd jobs and had met Bonin at one of Everett's parties, the same way Bonin met Butts. Bonin liked Miley, as he was easily manipulated. Miley did just about everything Bonin said and even engaged in sex with Bonin on occasion. So on February 3rd, 1980, Bonin invited Miley along to murder hitchhikers. Miley was excited about the idea. They encountered 15-year-old Charles Miranda in Hollywood. We once again advise caution. The following contains descriptions of violence, torture, and rape. Bonin invited the boy to have sex with him in the rear of the van. The boy agreed. As Bonin seduced the boy, Bonin whispered to Miley, Kid's gonna die. Bonin then asked Miranda how much money he had. Only six dollars. Bonin laughed. Then he snatched the money and raped Miranda. Miranda tried to escape, but he was tied down. Bonin asked Miley if he wanted to turn. He did. Miley pulled the van over and jumped in the back. He tried to sodomize Miranda, but couldn't sustain an erection. Enraged, Miley began to assault Miranda. Excited, Bonin joined in, strangling Miranda with his own shirt. Once Miranda was dead, Bonin and Miley discarded his body in an alley off East 2nd Street in LA. Bonin wasn't done yet. Later that afternoon, they found 12-year-old James McCabe on his way to Disneyland. Bonin offered the boy a ride, James accepted. Miley drove to a deserted grocery store parking lot where Bonin climbed into the back and raped James. James screamed and cried for help, prompting Miley to start the van and drive aimlessly. Afterwards, Bonin tried to comfort James and forced the poor child to sleep in his arms. Once James fell asleep, Bonin crushed the boy's throat with a tire iron and strangled him. James' body was left in a dumpster in the city of Walnut, he was the youngest victim Bonin ever killed. That was oddly merciful of him. Why would he allow the boy to fall asleep before killing him? Mm, that's a tough question. Perhaps it was due to his age and the way the boy wept. It may have awakened dormant feelings and memories of Bonin's own youth, thinking back to when he was forced into those terrible situations and yearned for comfort. Still, Bonin couldn't afford any witnesses. So you think Bonin killed him out of necessity, not out of pleasure? I don't think it's that simple. Bonin still tortured the boy through beatings and strangulation. What you might consider mercy was more than likely a fleeting moment of kindness brought about by memories. 
Bonin still chose to torture and kill. Hmm. So you are citing a case of nature over nurture. Indeed. Bonin could have let the boy go, but instead continued his onslaught of violence and death. Thankfully, Bonin was about to be shut down for a while. On February 4, 1980, Bonin was pulled over outside of his neighborhood of Kingswood. This was a direct violation of his parole, which stated he could only leave Kingswood should it pertain to his job as a delivery man. He was arrested and remanded at Orange County Jail until March 4, 1980, serving only a month of time. Ten days after his release, Bonin abducted and killed Ronald Gatlin, shoving ice picks into his ear canals and up his nose. And one week later, he killed Glenn Barker. Glenn's corpse was covered in cigarette burns and had a distended rectum, suggesting he too had been violated with foreign objects. Bonin's torture seems to escalate with each new victim. First beatings, body mutilations, ice picks, now burnings. I mean, why do that? Well, like a drug addict looking to get a fix, Bonin needed to increase the violence in order to get that same kick. Due to Bonin's addiction to sexual violence and the fact that he engaged in it so regularly, he had to find new and creative ways to get off. That's truly horrifying. What you say seems to have merit because the same day he killed Barker, Bonin went after a second victim, Russell Ruff. Unlike Barker, Ruff was beaten and tortured over the course of eight hours before finally being killed via strangulation. March proved to be a busy month for Bonin. Not only had he killed four helpless young men, but he acquired a new accomplice as well. In the later part of March 1980, Bonin offered to drive William Pugh home from a party at Everett Fraser's. Pugh was a 17-year-old just looking for a good time. Unfortunately, he found Bonin. Rather than kill Pugh, Bonin divulged that he enjoyed raping and murdering hitchhikers on Friday and Saturday nights, He also admitted that he killed via strangulation. He added, Before you kill someone, you should make a plan and find a place to dump the body before you even pick a victim. Pew was horrified. He thought for sure he was going to be Bonin's next victim, but Bonin drove him safely home. I liked Pew. He was a good kid. So why spare Pew? I think it was because of the two's shared history of delinquency. Pugh was also a thief and had been caught several times stealing automobiles. I think on some level, Bonin saw a reflection of himself. As such, he may not have been able to torture Pugh, as it would have been like raping himself. Either way, Bonin had found a new accomplice. On March 24, 1980, Bonin took Pugh out to abduct 15-year-old Harry Turner. Harry was a runaway from a boy's home in Lancaster. Bonin lured the boy into his van with the promise of $20. Once inside, Bonin bound, bit, and sodomized the boy. Pew was unsure what to do. Bonin ordered Pew to beat Turner's head while Bonin strangled him. Pew did as he was told, fearing he might be next. After Turner died, Bonin mutilated Turner's genitals and dumped his body at the rear door of an LA business. And so, Bonin adds another accomplice to the list. This was ultimately a good thing, though. How so? Well, the more people he added to his list, the more likely he was to be caught. Bonin's need to have an audience was a dangerous gamble. He assumed that having people there to watch him work wouldn't be a burden, that seeing what he did to his victims would keep them in line. 
Really though, he was adding more variables to an already shaky system. Sooner or later, someone was going to talk. Well, Bonin's days as a predator were winding down. The police were quickly realizing that these strings of grisly murders were all connected, and a manhunt was about to begin. Bodies were quickly mounting between LA and Orange County. Rumors quickly spread of a serial killer stalking the roads of Southern California. This mysterious figure was dubbed the Freeway Killer. Bonin loved the name. As newspapers printed more and more about his grisly murders, he began to collect the clippings in a scrapbook he kept in his van. Bonin was finally getting some attention. I was a celebrity. <laughs> Investigators quickly found a pattern linking all the previous killings from Bonin in 1979 and 1980. The problem was they had no suspect. Meanwhile, Bonin killed four more people between April and May. The first was Stephen J. Wood on April 10th. Wood was kidnapped walking to school after a dentist appointment. After that, Butts and Bonin reunited and went after Darren Kendrick. Together, they lured the 19-year-old with the promise of selling him drugs. Kendrick was killed after an ice pick damaged his cervical spinal cord. His body was found near Artesia Freeway with the pick still embedded in his ear. On May 17th, Bonin killed Lawrence Sharp, who he had met through Everett's parties. Sharp's body was found behind a Westminster gas station, strangled. Two days later, Bonin asked Vernon Butts to re-team with him, but Vernon still refused. So, Bonin went out and killed 14-year-old Sean King. Afterwards, he went back and bragged to Butts. Again, we're seeing him brag about his exploits. It's clear he wanted attention for his actions. He needed that validation to reassure him he was the best predator. Perhaps what's more fascinating is that he's chosen to tell Butts. How so? Well, think of it like the one who got away. Bonin had other accomplices. Why keep going back to Butts? Butts was Bonin's first real partner in crime. He was the accomplice he was closest to. Mm, that loneliness coming into play again, huh? Yep, Bonin missed Butts. Meanwhile, the police arrested William Pugh for stealing cars. He was housed at Padrino's Juvenile Courthouse on May 29, 1980. It was there that Pugh heard details about the freeway killer over the radio. He immediately thought about Bonin. Hoping to free himself of his current charges, Pugh confided in his counselor about how the killings matched the modus operandi of William Bonin. See, too many variables. Pugh's counselor quickly reported Hugh's suspicions to LAPD Homicide Sergeant John St. John. St. John arrived at the courthouse and began an extensive interview with Pugh. Pugh withheld the mention of being taken out on the murder of Harry Turner, but gave up everything else he had on Bonin. Sergeant St. John ordered an immediate background check of Bonin. Of course, that yielded years of sexual abuse up and down the freeway killer's stomping grounds. Sergeant St. John was convinced. Bonin had to be the killer. He ordered surveillance to begin on Bonin the evening of June 2nd, 1980. As the police moved in on their killer, Bonin found yet another accomplice in James Monroe, an 18-year-old homeless drifter from Michigan. Bonin picked up Monroe and offered to have him come live in his apartment. The two engaged in consensual sex, and Bonin got Monroe a job at the delivery firm where he worked. Monroe thought his life was finally turning around. Then, Bonin asked Monroe to accompany him on a strange outing. He said they were going to go out, rape, and murder teenage hitchhikers. The next evening, June 2, 1980, Bonin took Monroe out to kill. 
They lured 18-year-old Stephen Wells into Bonin's van from a bus stop. After discovering that Wells was bisexual, Bonin invited him to his apartment for sex and $200. At Bonin's apartment, Wells was beaten, raped, and strangled to death with his own shirt. Wells's body was then stuffed into a cardboard box and driven to Vernon Butts' house. Bonin was excited to show his friend what he had done. He opened the back of the van, revealing Wells' corpse. Butts seemed unmoved. Wells' body was dumped behind a disused Huntington Beach gas station, where it was discovered five hours later. Afterwards, Bonin and company went out for burgers at McDonald's. They purchased their meal with the money they had taken off of Stephen Wells' body. While the police didn't catch Bonin on June 2nd, they made their big break on June 11, 1980. That night, Bonin left his apartment to go for a drive. Plainclothes detectives then tailed Bonin from several cars. They kept a weather eye on him, hoping to catch him in the act. Quietly, they watched as Bonin attempted to lure five teenage boys over the course of the night. The detectives were antsy. They wanted Bonin, but couldn't do anything until he actually committed a crime. Finally, Bonin got one, 17-year-old Harold Tate. The tailing intensified. For what seemed like an eternity, police followed Bonin, yet nothing seemed to be happening. Bonin was just driving. Bonin's van finally pulled off the Hollywood freeway and into a desolate parking lot. The detectives parked their cars a block or two away. Several officers exited their vehicles and snuck over to the van. As they approached, they heard screaming from inside. Bonin was making his move. They had to act quickly. Detectives ripped open the door and jumped on Bonin. Bonin was half-naked, trying to pull Harold's clothes off. The detectives yanked Bonin from the van. They slammed him to the pavement and arrested him. He was booked on the attempted rape of Harold and the murder of Charles Miranda. Harold was saved. Upon hearing of Bonin's arrest, Monroe panicked and fled back to Michigan, and Miley fled back to Texas. Only Butts remained in California to await his fate. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Now, our story continues. William Bonin had finally been arrested for his killings. Bonin initially protested his guilt, yet the evidence seemed overwhelming. In his home, detectives found a blood-soaked shower and evidence of a struggle no doubt related to Stephen Wells. Bonin's van, however, proved the most damning. Inside Bonin's car, forensics found nylon cord, knives, pliers, coat hangers, a tire iron, a pool cue, and other implements of torture soaked in blood and other body fluids. Detectives also found a scrapbook full of clippings related to the freeway killings. More importantly, the interior had DNA evidence everywhere. Blood and semen found in the car matched those of the victims' bodies and Bonin's. Hairs from the Triskelion carpeting on the van matched several fibers found on victims as well. There was no chance for Bonin to go free. Still, Bonin would not confess. Word quickly got around about the capture of a suspected freeway killer. Parents of the missing boys demanded justice. Stephen Wells' mother wrote an impassioned letter begging Bonin to reveal the location of her son's body. Finally, Bonin confessed. He admitted to raping and killing 21 boys over the course of a year, as well as the location to Wells' body. 
After Bonin confessed, he began to recount each disgusting atrocity he committed. Why tell people that? Didn't he realize he was just digging himself a bigger hole? Mm, Well, same reason he told Butts about every kill, and the same reason he constantly found new people to join him. William Bonin was terribly desperate for attention. He had never gotten it from his parents, nor from his victims. Now he had it, and he'd be damned if he was going to waste it. Plus, he enjoyed having the audience, and he liked bragging about how he tortured each and every boy. The horror it brought people, the disgust, he could still get a kick out of that. So you think it was less narcissism and more loneliness? More than likely, he didn't care who he told so long as someone asked about it. Bonin was formally arraigned on July 25, 1980, and was charged with an additional 15 murders on July 29th. He was also charged with 11 robberies, one count of sodomy, and one count of mayhem. He was formally charged on August 8, 1980, and was held without bond. Also on July 25, 1980, police obtained a warrant to search Vernon Butt's Lakewood property. Bonin admitted he hadn't killed alone, and named all four of his accomplices. Butts was charged on July 29th for six counts of murder and three counts of robbery between August 1979 to April 1980. Butts proclaimed his innocence at first, but later confessed to accompanying Bonin and sexually violating several of the victims. He was adamant that he only had a limited role in torturing victims and mostly drove the car while Bonin committed the crimes. Ironically, Bonin placed most of the blame on Vernon, saying Butts was the real ringleader of the operation. He argued that Butts encouraged his morbid behavior and was manipulated into continuing. (laughs) There's a bit of cruel irony indeed, but why do you think he tried to pin it all on Butts? Well, Butts was his longest running accomplice. Perhaps he was hurt that Butts didn't assist him as much as he wanted, so this was payback. Butts was formally charged in Orange County Municipal Court on November 14, 1980 with his trial set for July 27, 1981. Soon, the rest of Bonin's accomplices followed suit. James Monroe was arrested in his home city of Port Huron, Michigan. He was extradited to California, where he was charged with the murder of Stephen Wells. He pleaded innocence on August 4, 1980. Miley was arrested in Texas and charged for the murder of Charles Miranda and James McCabe. He confessed to his culpability via phone call on February 3, 1981. He later confessed guilt in his pretrial hearing in May of 1981. On January 2nd, 1981, Bonin pleaded innocent to 14 counts of first-degree murder and numerous counts of sodomy, robbery, and mayhem. Vernon Butts was arraigned that same day with his formal plea set on January 7th. Butts, however, couldn't make it to his formal plea as he hung himself in his prison cell. Death by strangulation seems almost fitting. Butts' attorney, Joe Ingber, said that Butts had been grappling with suicidal thoughts after he heard transcripts describing how he graphically helped Bonin torture people were going to be released. Butts had tried to kill himself on multiple occasions beforehand. When Bonin heard about Butts, he didn't say much. When I heard about what happened to Butts, I'll admit I was a little disappointed, but I guess a little sad, too. How do you think he really felt? I think part of him was sad. More than anything, I think he was more worried about himself. Butts was his main scapegoat. Now he was on his own again, just like when he was a kid. 
On October 19, 1981, Bonin was brought to trial in L.A. County for the 12 victims he had slain there. The trial commenced on November 5, 1981, following jury selection. Jury selection proved difficult as the case was so widely known. Deputy District Attorney Sterling Norris acted as prosecutor. He sought the death penalty, viewing what Bonin had done as monstrous beyond compare. He argued Bonin had committed these acts as group sport and groomed others to help him, saying, quote, we will prove he is the freeway killer, as he has bragged to a number of witnesses. We'll show you that he enjoyed the killings. Not only did he enjoy it and plan to enjoy it, but he had an insatiable demand, an insatiable appetite, not only for sodomy, but for killing, unquote. Both Monroe and Miley testified in exchange for lighter sentences. They recounted how they had assisted in raping, robbing, and murdering several victims. The details were said to be so gruesome that some audience members had to leave the room to vomit. Pretty soon, Bonin's trial became a literal battle of nature versus nurture. Bonin's attorney, William Charvet, tried to paint him as a tragic figure, one who was a victim of poor nurturing. Charvet brought in Dr. David Foster, an expert on developmental effects on violence and abuse on children. Dr. Foster argued that due to a rough childhood, lack of protection, and positive behavioral feedback, Bonin's psychology had developed poorly. Bonin didn't understand the differences between love and violence and was unable to control his impulses. To counter this, the prosecution brought in Dr. Park Dietz. Dr. Dietz was a forensic psychiatrist, an expert in sexual sadism and impulse disorders. He argued Bonin's actions were premeditated, given how he'd told his accomplices ahead of time that they were planning to go kill young men and had plans on how to dispose of the bodies when they were done. He also concluded that Bonin was a sexual sadist who suffered antisocial personality disorder. Neither condition would impair his ability to act of his own volition. Things continued to be heated until a Fresno-based television reporter, David Lopez, waived his immunity under California Shield Law and agreed to testify on behalf of the prosecution. Lopez had conducted seven interviews with Bonin between December 1980 and April of 1981. In the interviews, Bonin confessed to being the freeway killer and offered precise details on who, what, and where he killed. Lopez was to be given exclusive rights, provided he didn't broadcast or dispense the information. For months, Lopez debated over his journalistic integrity and his duty as a citizen. Finally, he opted to testify. Lopez further testified that Bonin agreed to help police find Stephen Wells' body with knowledge that they'd get burgers after. During the month of December, closing statements were made by both parties. Prosecutors argued the death penalty was the only way to deal with such a heinous monster. The defense only asked for a reasonable verdict, hoping not to get the death penalty. Finally, on January 6, 1982, William Bonin was convicted of 10 of the 12 murders. He had been cleared on the murders of Thomas Lundgren and Sean King, sodomy of Marcus Grabs, mayhem of Thomas Lundgren, and robbing another victim. It was, however, unanimous under special circumstances that Bonin be granted the death penalty. The defense tried to seek a modification to the sentencing, but on March 21st, the sentence was settled. But Bonin still had to be tried in Orange County. On March 21st, Bonin went to trial in Orange County for four more murders and a charge of robbery. 
Bonin tried to get a change of venue given the popularity of the case, but was denied in November of 1982. The Orange County trial ended on August 22, 1983. Once again, the jury found Bonin guilty and recommended the death penalty. Bonin's accomplices also received their verdicts. William Pugh was sentenced to six years of voluntary manslaughter in the case of Harry Turner on May 17, 1982. He was released in 1985 for good behavior. Monroe was sentenced to 15 years to life for second-degree murder on April 6, 1981. To this day, he serves time at Mule Creek State Prison. Despite numerous appeals, he's been consistently denied parole. Finally, Miley was sentenced to 25 years to life on February 5, 1982 for first-degree murder. He was repeatedly reprimanded for attempting to rape male inmates. He died on May 25, 2016, after being attacked by inmates. Bonin remained on death row for 14 years. During that time, California ruled that the gas chamber was too inhumane and moved to lethal injection instead. So on February 23, 1996, Bonin became the first criminal to be executed by lethal injection in California history. When asked about how we felt about the death penalty, Bonin said, They feel my death will bring closure, but that's not the case. Many people also felt that death wasn't the answer, that Bonin should instead simply rot the rest of his life. This debate ranged from both politicians and citizens alike. I learned very early on, at at a very early age, my parents taught me that two wrongs don't make a right. Um, And that's very much what we've got going on here. It still seemed a good majority more wanted Bonin dead, especially the families of Bonin's victims. My only regret is getting caught. Had I not been caught, I'd have just continued. At 11.45 in the evening, Bonin entered the now-retired gas chamber to receive his lethal injection. He was strapped to a gurney and sedated. None of his family came to witness his death, not even his mother. Only the family of the victims and David McVicker came. Finally, at 12.13 a.m., William Bonin, the freeway killer, was pronounced dead. So tell me something, Vanessa. Now that you've heard the rest of the story, do you think it was more nature or nurture? Well, the world is what you make it, but sometimes it can also make you. I think William Bonin was a product of the world around him. From birth, it seemed like Bonin was merely a vessel for his father and grandfather's sexual rage. Most of his life, he was molested, and in turn, he continued the cycle. Yet what Bonin did, he did of his own volition. He chose to escalate the violence, the pain. He was a man who harbored great darkness inside him, and the world he was born into helped bring that evil out. To me, it's not a question of nature versus nurture. It's nature and nurture. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. 
Join us next Monday as we delve into the twisted psyche of the Moore's murders. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Carrie Murphy, Carly Madden, and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Michael Pendis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Our amazing cast of voice actors include, by alphabetical order, Nicholas Masu and Manu Narayan. <laughs> 